0: and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Thank you so much, Noel. This is God's Word. Please remain standing and let me pray for our time in the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, thank you for this day. Lord, you are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the sustainer of every day and every breath. So, Lord, we're grateful on this Lord's day to be able to acknowledge you and to praise you together as a body, as a church. It's a good thing. It's a good gift. Lord, use this time that we have gathered around the text that Noel just read for us, Lord, for for our good, for our edification in Christ. And ultimately, for uh, your glory on the earth and the salvation of others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So, church, glad to be here tonight with all of you, and I'll add my voice to others who have said, uh, Happy Mother's Day, if that applies to you uh, in the room. I'm glad you're here. And, uh, Grateful for all uh, that you continue to do and have done. Um, and really glad to be focused around this text tonight. We, uh, we're, you know, as already alluded to, we're missing Pastor Josh, but glad he's getting to be and uh, be with and spend some time with his mom and dad and especially his mom on this Mother's Day weekend. And so we get to soldier on in the book of Romans uh, without him and keep on going as we get towards the end, believe it or not, getting towards the end of this book. And so, uh, that said, as we dive into the text, um, as I was thinking about these verses this week, uh, I got to thinking about this uh, fairly well-known and kind of often still today repeated uh, nugget, this little tidbit of, uh, I guess we would call it kind of Greek uh, philosophy ancient Greek philosophy that still swirls around, spins around in our cultural, uh, you know, mindset and in our language. And it's this uh, little piece of Greek wisdom that says that for human beings, wisdom is inherently rooted to some extent in a person coming to know who they are. A person knowing who they are just on, kind of on a personal level, but then also at, on like an existential level level as a human being wisdom is found in knowing yourself we can see yeah as that pops up on the screen there that's the phrase know thyself it goes back to uh greek philosophers in various ways we find it in the writing of plato uh him kind of quoting socrates as his teacher at one point and we find it in some other places as well as we look back it's kind of uh, what we can find out about greek history in a related manner, uh, it's kind of a similar way, only I would argue maybe coming from a, from a slightly more um, reliable source or trustworthy source, especially for us as we're, you know, thinking about the world from a Christian perspective. Uh, I thought this week also of the well-known pastor, theologian of the, uh, the uh, what's, see, 1500s, maybe 16th century, right, um, and uh, a guy by the name of John Calvin pastor theologian uh, french guy but spent most of his time in switzerland in geneva and he likewise is a guy that we look back in history and see him reflecting on the this thing this uh this reality of the knowledge of self and wisdom and how knowledge of self and wisdom kind of go hand in hand we see this especially right out of the gate john calvin wrote a really big tome of uh uh, theological reflection that ended up coming out in five volumes by the time uh, he I think he was still editing it and still working on it but when he when he passed away at a fairly young age uh, which you know maybe maybe he passed away at a fairly long, young age because he wrote you know five volumes of theology um, but anyway right at the start of this work uh, institutes of the Christian religion we see him reflecting on these themes uh, knowledge of self and wisdom he writes this says, our wisdom, like, yeah, I got it there. Uh, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, he says. Part one, the knowledge of God. Part two, the knowledge of ourselves. Knowledge of God, knowledge of self. He goes on, but as these two are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. He goes on from there, kind of beginning to reflect on and unpack what he's thinking there. Like I said, he's got a lot to unpack in five volumes. But for us, the thing to notice here is that just like, you know, the, the Greek philosophers, Calvin, too, here, as, you know, a, a philosopher in his own right, is, uh, and, you know, again, more, maybe more importantly to us, something we would care about more and value more, a guy who has studied the Scriptures, who knows the Bible, cares about what the, what the Bible is saying, uh, he comes out and he is seeing and he is acknowledging that knowing who you are is important. Knowledge of self matters when it comes to knowing truth, when it comes to uh, having and upholding you know, good theology, and when it comes to living wisely in this world. An honest and true kind of self-awareness is essential. Know thyself, know who you are, know your history, know your story, how you got to to where you are, and what what streams led to you, right? As we reflect on uh, the words of Paul in these verses here in Romans chapter 15, these next six verses, Noel read for us, Uh, one of the big points that I think the Apostle Paul is uh, kind of zeroing in on, especially as he's kind of concluding this section where he's been thinking a lot about fracturing in the church. He's been thinking about these these two groups, these Gentile believers and these Jewish believers, and he's talking about those who are strong in faith versus those who are weak in faith, and about all the ways that this uh, this community of faith is kind of being threatened to kind of fracture, go different directions. In the midst of all this reflection... Paul's coming down and I think his his big thought in these verses is he kind of put it puts a cap on this section is that he's thinking that if if the Jewish believers who have come to believe in Jesus who are in Rome and the Gentile believers who have come to believe in Jesus who are living in Rome are ever to be truly a united church a united body a true fellowship then they're going to need to know themselves. They're going to need to know some things about who they, are, who they are. They need to know their story and what has led to them being together in this situation in the church. This is, this is a fundamental thing. It is really important that they know the story of redemption that God has written and how they have wound up together in this situation. Really, more than anything else, what these Uh, two fractured groups need to recognize is that the way that uh, these Jewish believers think about and conceptualize salvation and the way that the Gentiles understand the story of salvation and how they've come to be a part of it this is actually in truth it's one story it's one thing one work of God's redemption through history It's one story, not not two separate, divided stories. It's one, because there is one author of salvation, the Lord himself. It's all grounded in, uh, ultimately, uh, as we see from this side of the cross, it's grounded in Jesus. This one story of salvation leads to him. It's about him. And specifically, I want to reflect tonight on, on how it's grounded in these bedrock truths, That we're seeing Paul reflect on in these verses truths about who God is and what he has done who is God what has he done in history as the author of salvation this is important for this first century audience to whom Paul is writing but you know we can bring it to our to us right we can uh, bring this to our own doorstep and say this is important for us to think about as well as believers in our day and age, in this, you know, 2023. Because the truth is that just as this was true for the original audience, for us as well, the more you and I or anyone come to know ourselves and come to know our story in light of who God is, in light of what he has done, as kind of a function of this one grand story of redemption The more we are going to be able to hang together on the things that really matter, know what really matters, and to uh, let the things that don't matter slip away, you know. We're going to know what are the gospel issues like this we got to hold on, this not so much, right? And we can still stay together and be a welcoming, loving community to one another if we know the main thing, who God is, what he's done, his story, and how we have become a part of it. I really think that is, maybe not to over, I don't want to overstate the importance of it, but I think the antidote in many ways, the cure when it comes to fracturing communities of faith, a fracturing church is for believers in Jesus to know themselves as a part of this big narrative, to know themselves as small, and yet also significant. Small yet significant. Right? Uh, because we're a part of this this grand story. I think, you know, I say small because you know we look at the testimony of the scriptures, we see scripture talk about how you know our life is is a mist. We are a vapor. We're like the grass of the field. We're here today and gone tomorrow. We're small, we're momentary, we're temporary. And yet at the same time, the testimony of the scriptures would also tell us, even though we are small, that we're these bit players in this grand story of redemption, we are also really significant. Why? How do we know that? Because we're told by the scriptures that God shed his blood, Christ shed his blood for us. And if the blood of Christ does not make us significant, then I don't know what does. We are small but significant in this grand story of redemption in which we find ourselves, in which we have been caught up by God's grace. So that, really for the next few moments, I want that to kind of be my reflection points for us, if I'm making sense. Am I making sense? Okay, good. I wasn't sure if I was making sense this morning, so we'll see if I can stay on point here. so there's two reflection points really there's a little bit of kind of overlap and redundancy between them but it's going to be who is god and what has god done as we see it in these verses so we'll dive in to the first one waste no time who is god we look at god is the the uh, the one story god of redemption the author of redemption as we see it in these verses according to paul We're asked that question, we look, and right away, if we're looking at the text, we see in verse eight that in Christ, in the Messiah, God is a servant. God is a servant. Who is God? He is a servant. Verse 8 says, we'll look at this again. For I tell you, Paul writes, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's Truthfulness. God became a servant to the circumcised, and just kind of as an aside, this moment, uh, this is one of these truths in my mind that is just like paradigm altering. If you understand that the God of the universe, the Creator of all things, the King, the Savior, the Redemption, the you know King of Redemption, right, the bringer of redemption that he has served us right (laughs) like who should be serving who we think we think about okay i've just said all that about who god is we should be the one serving him gospel says he serves us right that's what paul just wrote right so that is that is just mind-blowing if you wrap your heart wrap your head around what that what that says what that implicate what that implies in our lives so uh think about this a little bit more uh says, Christ became a servant, we might ask the question, how so? What do you mean, Paul? How did Christ become a servant? And really, to answer that question, we don't need to look any further than our own Bibles. We open it up, and we see that if we look at the the gospel accounts, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we know these guys, right? We spent some time with them. But we we look at these uh, testimonials of the life of Jesus, we see all these ways that Christ has become a servant. His earthly life, his earthly ministry. It's, it's full of Christ being a servant to his people, coming to his people first. We see it right out of the gate. We think about the way Jesus entered the world. This, this humble incarnation. The, the Gospel of John talks about how uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. And we think about his entrance as we read about it in the Gospels. It is not this huge you know, fanfare, pomp, and circumstance. But Christ, as he enters the world as a servant, he enters quietly. He enters humbly okay, as, as a servant would. And that's how he enters. We think about further along in Christ's earthly ministry, how he serves all of these examples we read the stories that the, the gospel writers are telling us and think about how Jesus has this is this servant as he teaches. Jesus is a patient teacher, isn't he? <laughs> you know, all the time with these parables, all the time with these sermons that he's giving, and man, I mean, did people get it? No, right? Even the guys he was spent all the time with, he was closest with, a lot of times they were not getting it at all. Right, so Jesus came to his people, and he served them by being this, this consistent, faithful teacher. We see Jesus coming as a servant in the way he heals. He, he goes to the sick, he goes to those who no one would touch, touches them, heals them. We see the way Jesus is serving as he's pu- pushing back the demonic forces in the world, those who are possessed and oppressed by, de- by demons, right? the spiritual forces of darkness real stuff. And Jesus enters the world and because he is, you know, himself the king bringing in the kingdom pushes that out. He is serving in all of these ways. Even I would say he's serving as he's doing battle with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's got sharp words. Right. He's not he's not being a pushover with these guys and yet he is serving his people by pushing against the distortions That the scribes and the Pharisees have brought of what it means to actually be the people of God and what it means to follow the law, and and Jesus comes and says, "Hey, you got it wrong, guys. This is the truth. Jesus is serving, and you know, I haven't even mentioned the ultimate, right? The ultimate way that Jesus serves, we know it serves unto death, going to the cross." Laying down his own life in obedience to his Father for our sake. We see that as a moment as we think about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. See how Jesus was portrayed and spoken of before he even came on the scene. This uh, servant that Isaiah speaks about, Isaiah 51. The servant who would come and who would suffer for his people. And that's who Jesus comes to be, the suffering servant. So in all of these ways, Jesus is the servant to the circumcised, the servant to his people, the servant to the Jews. One of the ways this has been crystallized in my own heart, uh, and I go back to, and I hope is just a theme verse from my life, and I try to speak it into other people's life as often as I get a chance, Mark ten forty-five. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So maybe I've, maybe I've killed the point. <laughs> maybe I've gone on too long, but right, right. who is God? In Jesus Christ, who comes into the world, he comes in as a servant. So verse eight. Bring this to us, just think about this for a second, ask the question, do you know yourself as one who has been served? that you've been served by the king of the universe, that you've been served by God himself. Has Has that sunk in, you know, from the head to the heart? You've been served by the king of the universe. Hallelujah. It's incredible. In this one story of redemption. We think about, this has really been a theme, how salvation has come into the world throughout this uh, letter to the Romans. And we see all the way back in Romans chapter 1, we think about the the Jew and Gentile dynamic going on here. Right at the beginning, first chapter of the letter, Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. This one story of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek, also to the Gentiles. Hello? So it's one story, right? It's one story, and it's one God who serves. So who is God? He is a servant. Uh, but secondly, I need, to, I need to keep moving here because I'm going to put you all to sleep. Are you asleep yet? No, okay. Uh, not only is he a servant, we also see in this text that uh, God is the source and sustainer of hope source and sustainer of hope we see this in the last uh, verse and a half of our text verses 12 the last half of 12 and 13 three times we see this word this theme of hope pop up in these verses starting with this designation that paul inspired by the holy spirit gives to god right the god of hope right that is his name well, you know, we have many names for, for God. That song that we sang earlier talks about the names of God. Here, here's another one right here. The, the God of hope. That is who our God is. And that speaks to this reality of God being the source, right? He's the, he's the source of hope because he is the God of hope. It is his. But not only that, he goes on from there It talks about, Paul talks about in verse 13, how God fills us with hope. And not just fills us, but he fills us to the extent that we abound, he says, uh, with hope. The hope that God himself has given. And that word abound, you, you could think also of the word kind of overflow. Thought of, um, you know, the, the image of this. Like imagine a, a big pitcher of, you know, I don't know, cool water or lemonade being poured into a tiny little cup. That, that's this picture of of overflowing, of abounding, right? God is the one, uh, the God of hope is the one who's this huge pitcher of hope and he's pouring it, right? And we've got this tiny little cup and we're catching all we can but it's splashing everywhere, right? If you have little kids, think about a a little child trying to like, you know, fill up their own milk cup, right? It's abounding, it's overflowing. And At least in the case of hope, that's a good thing. If it's milk all over the kitchen, maybe not so much. But if we're abounding in hope, hallelujah, right? Hallelujah. So again, to kind of bring this to ourselves, to us today, an encouragement for us, that I would, uh, I, I would need for myself and I would give to you this evening, is hope in God, friends. Hope in God. There are lots of things that would have us hope in them but they are false hopes, right? These are not things that we can ultimately hope in, these are things in the world that will let us down. You know, whether it's hope in, hope in a political leader, right? Hope, hope in, a, in a particular relationship to fill the longings of your soul. You know, Hope in, think about Mother's Day, having children like, to, long, to, to fulfill. All these things that we can have hope in, but ultimately these are not the thing the calling of God's word, the calling of scripture is to hope in God because he is the one who will never fail, who will never let us down, the one that our hearts were designed to be fulfilled by. Nothing else is like that. No one else is like him to fulfill us. The God of hope. I think about this theme just a little bit longer, kind of meditating on it uh, as I did this week. You just think about how this theme kind of shows up in the Psalms in so many ways, rich ways. I thought of Psalm thirty. The word hope itself isn't exactly mentioned, but I thought of uh, Psalm thirty in verse five, where David, as the psalm writer, says, "Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy, he says, comes with the morning." Joy coming with the morning. To me, that's a picture of hope, right? Light dawning, the sun coming up. Hope, hallelujah. Think also of Psalm 42. It's uh, one of these psalms that's attributed to the sons of Korah. This group of uh, musicians and poets. And they write, Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So as the psalm writers are encouraging us, I would encourage us as well. I would encourage you tonight, as I I need to encourage myself, put your hope in the God of hope. The God who is writing that one story of salvation and who has caught you up into it. Right? So who is God? God is a servant to his people. He is the source and sustainer of hope. Both of these kind of flow out of and function as a part of this, you know, this one story that God is writing and us being a part of it. But it leads us to that, that second big major point, reflection, which is the question of what has God done? As we think about God being the author of this story, what, what has God done? in such a way that that we should have hope, that we should have peace and joy and these things that get talked about in verse 13. And there's a lot of ways that we could answer that question. What has God done? A lot. God has done a lot of stuff. But the one answer I want to give to that tonight is that God has kept his word. God keeps his promises. He has been faithful to what he has said he would do he, can, he has done, right? And he's continuing to do. We see this reality, I think, all over the verses that we read, and we see it in two specific ways. First, we see that God, how God has kept his word to the people of Israel in particular, starting with the patriarchs, as we see in verse 8. But then secondly, we see how God has kept his word and been faithful to promises made even to the Gentiles, to all people, to all nations. We see that especially in verses 9 through 12, where we see these four quotations that are given, pulled, pulling from the Old Testament. So let me just briefly, I'll, I'll try not to make, uh, make too long of this. I feel like I have lots of points. i got, my points have sub-points. Po- <laughs> are you lost yet? <laughs> are you done? All right. Uh, so, yeah, sub-point 2A here here. Uh, What has God done? He has kept his promises to the patriarchs, right? Verse 8, we see this. Let me read it again. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. You know, I assume this is in this room that most of you guys, if I ask who are the patriarchs, most of you would have an answer to that. Patriarchs? Man, I have bad ears. I heard lots of mumbling, but I don't know if I heard the right answer. But that's probably my ears. It's probably not what you said. So, so who's one of them? Abraham. Abraham. There it is. Okay, my ears are working now. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? These guys are the patriarchs. The, the big three, we might say. And we see, especially uh, just focusing in on Abraham for the moment. He's the first one, right? The, the covenant that God makes with Abraham is kind of this pivotal moment in the story of redemption and how that then uh, gets kind of repeated and teased out again and again and again and expanded and clarified throughout the whole Old Testament, one to the next, as the story is being told. We see, you know, the original call of Abraham in Genesis 20, and we see the covenant that God makes in Genesis 17, and then we see this reiteration of the promises and the expansion of them in Genesis 22, and just on and on, this covenant that God makes with Abraham. And uh, it, if I have just a second, I know I'm, I'm like, playing with borrowed time here, but, like, to, to, to just geek out. When I was in seminary, I, like, I was trying to think of a way of how can I, like, really crystallize, you know, the covenant of Abraham in my head in terms of, like, what all is involved in that covenant. And I came up with four Ps. Four Ps, not five. Four So I I love alliteration, right? So four Ps. The the covenant with Abraham is four things, right? Abraham is promised people. God says he's going to make of him a great nation. Abraham is promised a place. The Lord, you know, the Lord says, "I I will make a home for you. I will give you a land. God promised him his presence, right? I will go with you. I will be with you as your God wherever you go. And then he, he promises him a purpose. He says, so that you will be a blessing. I will go with you. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing, right? So the, that, that's the covenant. is the people, the place, the personal presence of God and this purpose. The covenant of Abraham. And what we see, you know, not only does it start in, in Genesis, all throughout, as I said a moment ago, the whole Old Testament, God remains faithful to what he said to Abraham, to all the patriarchs. And it's not because they were like killing it, right? It's not because these were awesome guys. It was because God was faithful to his word. He kept his word, he kept his promises. But God wasn't done, right? Keeping his word to his people, he also included and is keeping his word and is faithful to Gentiles. <laughs> yes, yay. Most of us probably. Uh, yeah resonate with that unless you have a Jewish heritage which, uh, which if you do hallelujah but uh, but Gentiles too we see starting in verse nine, Christ became a servant to the circumcised he says for two reasons, but uh, let's see verse nine, uh, so first, the promises given to the patriarchs, and but then verse nine and and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, and what we begin to see in these four quotations that are kind of encapsulated in verses 9 through 12 of the text here is that in my mind what we see here is an escalation of god's faithfulness to the nations all people so look at the, what do you mean brian you've lost me okay so verse 9b the second part paul is pulling in these old testament quotes the first one is psalm 18 verse 49 paul says as it is, as it is written therefore i will praise you among the gentiles and sing to your name. So, if we take the I there as someone who is, you know, an Israelite, you know, a faithful uh, Israelite, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, sing to God's name. What we see there is that uh, the Gentiles here are getting to witness the praise of God, the worship of God, because there is someone who is a faithful Israelite who is uh, who is singing the praises of God among them right so there's there's a there's a witness there but it escalates verse two verse 10 sorry uh, uh, example two it says and again it is said rejoice o gentiles with his people and so we've gone from kind of a witness here to now the gentiles are called to get involved with the people they're called to rejoice here so there's an escalation. Again, verse 11, we go on. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's Psalm 117, verse 1. And here now, like the people of Israel have dropped out entirely. And it's, and it's a direct call to the Gentiles to praise the Lord themselves. And so they're getting more involved here. And not only that, there's this reference to all people. And then finally, the final escalation here, verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him, Paul writes, in him will the Gentiles hope. So essentially, by the time we get to this this last Old Testament quotation, the Gentiles are all in. They are fully engaged in this covenant story because their hope is in him. Their hope is in the God of Israel. Their hope is in the root of Jesse, who ultimately will become, right? Jesus will fulfill that prophecy and become that root of Jesse. We see that Jesus, uh, the Gentiles will be ruled by, right? The, the reign and rule of God will be over the Gentiles. So they are all in now. And that, that is God keeping his promise, right? We, we see God keeping his promise as we flow into the New Testament and by the time we get to what Paul is writing here in Romans, to bring us full circle, what we see is that God has kept his, his promise and his word that the Gentiles would be all in. Because Paul is writing to a church that is largely Gentile believers. So this word that the Gentiles, you know, in you, in him, the Gentiles will hope, the fact that there is a church in Rome is a fulfillment, right? right? That, that is God keeping his word right there. And now I've lost you. <laughs> but this is, this is the reality. This is God's faithfulness, right? The one story that God is writing. Uh, there was a quote that I uh, came across this week that I thought was valuable from a commentator who was reflecting on this Gentile-Jew dynamic uh, that I want to read here as we begin to kind of finish up our reflection. Uh, and uh, this, this commentator says this about this one story he says it is not that God has done one thing for Jews and another thing for Gentiles no God has designed mercy for all but as chapters 9 through 11 of Romans made clear the purpose of Israel always had the Gentiles in mind and the purpose for the Gentiles was always that they would come into the fulfilled returned from exile Israel And this, indeed, is what all of these scriptural uh, quotations are pointing us towards. That's what Paul is saying. So ultimately, we get to be those caught up in the story who know that God in Christ is a servant to his people. We get to know that he is the the source and the sustainer of hope. And we get to know that he is the God who keeps his word, who is faithful. He is the, the... The promise keeper and verse 13 to close us off i think is really it's kind of this wish prayer benediction and because all of this is true paul ends with this he says you know may the god of hope fill you with all joy peace and believing so that the power of the holy spirit i'm sorry so that by the power of the holy spirit you may abound in hope If there was ever a way to bring unity to uh, a group of, you know, people who are claiming the name of Christ, who are fracturing and dividing, I think that, that prayer, that benediction is it, right? I was thinking this week, maybe a homework assignment for us would be, you know, if you're in tension with another believer in some way, start trying to pray verse 13 for them, right? Pray that the God of hope would fill that person, whoever you're in tension with or struggling with, with joy, all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they may abound in hope. I think if you start praying that for for someone that you're in conflict with, that you're struggling with, that's going to be a game changer, right? I think some of those things that you're wrestling over uh, might shift in your perspective, uh, might be altered just a bit so that there might be kind of a re a grounded unity in your relationship that 's on this this gospel of peace, gospel of hope. I think that 's what I want to say. Let me close this in prayer, Father in heaven, God, thank you for your word, God, you are good and true and faithful, and Lord, it is so good that you have remained a true to your word, and because of that, you have caught us up in this grand narrative, this, this good story. Lord, fill us with your hope. In light of your truth, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey,